Within the depths of the strip mall of the damned lies a decrepit video store, long since shuttered. Past the dusty shelves, empty save for spiders, spinning their patient webs, beyond the ancient batwing doors guarding the sepulchre, where once were hidden the perverse and heretical, a secret society assembles to scrutinize those films which are rumored to drive viewers to madness and dissolution. Draw closer, dear listener. Let your trembling ears sup upon the eldritch knowledge of the Cinemania Society. We, the, the brethren of the Lens Palm, do convene to judge this judgment. Welcome, brethren and sisteren. I declare tonight's conclave of the Cinemania Society to be in session. All right. Please be seated. I also welcome our listeners, whom I shall now warn. We disciples of the Cinemania Society have studied the mysteries of the motion picture and meditated upon the silver screen for many years. Therefore, we have become inured to the films we scrutinize, which may contain hazards unsuitable to young and sensitive ears. As such, we advise anyone listening to do so with discretion. Guard your ears carefully, lest you develop a severe and irreversible case of cinemania. Present at our conclave tonight are Brother Zachariah, guardian of the door. You bet your buckaroo bonsai I'm here. Brother Daniel, possessor of the word. Yes. Brother Andre, voice from the outer world. Yeah. <laughs> Brother Ethan, keeper of the lenses. It is through my charges that truth is refracted. I am Brother Andy, Master Illuminator. I will be serving as the Pontifex of Presentment for tonight's subject of scrutiny. Jerzy Skolimowski's 1978 film, The Shout. This psychosexual drama was considered something of an avant-garde piece at the time and features a string of popular theatrical actors of the day. John Hurt and Alan Bates go head-to-head -head for the affections of the delightful Susanna York in a battle of wits and mysterious aboriginal curses. Stuff up your ears if it all becomes too much, dear listeners. Brother Daniel will act as master castigator for this conclave. Brother, present the charges. Oh, we have quite a lot of charges for you today. This film is guilty of the use of cricket as a narrative device, expecting us to understand cricket, thinking cricket. that cricket is interesting, interrupting cricket, cricket, cricket. a perfectly good game of cricket with psychosexual drama, not actually being cricket. cricket, having John Hurt make the weirdest ASMR videos we have ever seen, Alan Bates mumbling delivery of his lines in a way that is almost incomprehensible, while it's covered in sadly comprehensible cow feces, expecting us to believe Don Hurt could land Susanna Hurt, use of native mysticism as a trope, having a man stumble through sand dunes in a disheveled coat at the beginning of the film and not have him say it's or um and now for something completely different. Although the film was shot in the UK in the 1970s and we are all aware that Monty Python was still a thing ending the film Python sketch, ripping off the ending of the persecution and assassination of John Paul Marat as performed by the inmates of the Asylum of Charenton under the direction of the Marquis de Sade, 
poor use of the white saber trick, making us watch John Hurt get to second base. Not knowing how many crickets or wickets that second base would represent in the game of cricket, watching John Hurt age before our eyes. Watching John Hurt's eyes remain 427 years old throughout the duration of the film. Having us believe that a man named Alan could be a sexual predator. Way too much animal symbolism. Long-winded, pointless stories. Universal inability to walk in a straight line. Violence against sheep. Making Alan Bates show off way too much 1970s body hair for the general viewer's comfort. Making us look at John Broadbent in nothing but a jockstrap. Criminal underuse of Tim Curry. Bad wind effects. Violence to carrots. Bad running. And finally, being the weirdest movie about cricket that we have ever seen. Thank you, Brother Daniel. And before we dive too deeply into this swirling vortex of liquid madness, let us first cleanse ourselves in the soapy, soapy delights of commercial enterprise. We return fully cleansed and ready to go on, though our souls may wither and wane. Brother Andre, I believe you have some warnings for us as well. Mm -hmm. Before proceeding into the shout, we here at the Cinemania Society would like to advise and warn you that the following content contains the following troubling subject matter. We got violence. We got psychological abuse. We got cultic abuse, we got misogyny, we got rape, we got racism, white saviorism, cultural relativism, bad representation of mental illness, and body horror, if any of these would potentially halt your enjoyment of the Cinemania Society podcast, we advise that you skip these next few episodes. Very well, brothers, it's time for us to delve in and find out exactly what we're dealing with here. For our first part of The Shout, Brother Ethan, can you tell us what it is is going on? Certainly, Brother Andy. The film opens with a seemingly nonsensical series of images. Uh, we are first treated to Susanna York in a nurse's outfit pulling up in a very French car. So France's answer to the Volkswagen, the Ducheval. Um, literally a two horsepower car. Uh, she runs into a typical English country mansion to inspect the trio of bodies laid out under sheets in a dining hall. This is followed by a protracted, unstabilized long lens shot of an Australian Aborigine in an 18th century naval officer's jacket, weaving through sand dunes toward camera to produce a folding telescope. This is all under the entire film's credits. There is no end credits at the end of the picture. They roll them all right now. Um, Brother Ethan, I, I would I would call out, I think you've missed the first most important nonsensical image, which the film opens with uh, a picture of a man in a jockstrap smacking a gong. Oh, yes. <laughs> yes, that's right. Um, the, the, Technically, that's not part of the film. That's that is absolutely opening image. part of the film, as that's we will discover later on with the parallel symmetry during during the game. That, it, I, it's not. That was the, the film company used the man with a gong for all of their films. The, the, it used to be a, a, a traditional thing that you begin cinema with. You have the man bonging the gong. That was the thing. You knew you were in the cinema, ready to receive film. It's I, the 1970s. Get I it on. I completely disbelieve this illusion. Get it on. 
I can <laughs> absolutely heavily assure, you, assure you that man with a gong appeared so many times, it's ingrained in the memory of people watching film from that era. He was a regular they, at Studio 54. Well, they had to put him in the jockstrap so you'd know for sure that he was using an actual mallet to bang the gong. Well, that's how you knew that what you were about to view was art and not merely eroticism. (laughs) The one that's the eroticism is where he's not wearing the jockstrap or carrying a mallet, but he still bangs the gong. Bangs even harder. (laughs) (laughs) I stand corrected. So (laughs) sadly, sadly corrected. (laughs) There's a smash cut from the uh, Aborigines telescope to a motorcycle headlight. Uh, Alan Bates, as the motorcyclist, speeds past the self-same 2CV6 from earlier, exchanging dirty looks with Susanna York at the wheel. John Hurt, who I would say is young enough that he might actually be classified as John Boo Boo at this point, uh, Uh, is beside her in Cricket Whites. They pull up to the same mansion we just saw a moment ago. Hurt exits curtly. York drives off and enter Tim Curry in an Austin Mini, classic original Austin Mini. Um, speaking of bang a gong, and that's probably a good thing that Mark Boland isn't in this picture because uh, he'd be looking at his fate sitting there. Um, <clears throat> uh, it's important here to note that Curry's character is never actually named in the picture. However, according to the IMDb page, he's playing the English poet and author Robert Graves, who penned the short story from which the screenplay is adapted. How meta. That's not like we've seen a movie recently where they did that before. Uh, as he enters, uh, a woman simultaneously admonishes him for being a pervert one moment. Don't you look up my dress! Then flirts coquettishly with him the next moment. Little does she know the fire she's playing with is Curry's only just three years off the Rocky Horror Picture Show. Uh, there's no sign of that sweet transvestite from transsexual Transylvania, however, as he and Madame Mixed Signals exit to the grounds, where we are treated to a montage of an idealized cricket game being set up. Peacock strut crusty old bastards in folding chairs leer at women in nurses outfits cows wander around it's a good old bucolic english spring morning so british so very very british all those peacocks just keep coming up over and over again like we just keep getting close-ups of the peacocks like there was Uh, an outbreak at the zoo we're british and we like peacocks all right it's a thing (laughs) We really, really <laughs> like peacocks. You uh-huh. can't have a fancy mansion if you don't have peacocks. Uh-huh. It reminds us of when we used to control India, you see. Did you want me to bring the peacock in? I've no. got it on a leash. No, get back into it's, your hole. It's back. been pecking me quite severely. Back oh. in your hole. Oh. You say peacock and no one bats an eye, but you say poopcock and everyone loses <laughs> their minds. <laughs> <laughs> oh yes, if, uh, if the delightful oh peacock were known as the poop balls, would it be any less beautiful? Oh my god. I think it more would, so. yes. No, no, it, it would it would be less beautiful. I, I've I've actually had to work around a place, a naval facility that had peacocks on its grounds for some reason, and they have the most annoying just call and it's constant and they do it at night and you can understand why the romans like like to eat the freaking tongues of these things just to shut them up um, (laughs) uh, i'll have to admonish you there brother zachariah in fact it is majestic and beautiful and awesome shut up 
just like the British dental system, right? Okay. Well, if, if we have concluded our, our, our peacocking and navel gazing, all of this mysterious tone setting gives way to the actual story almost eight minutes into the film's scant 86 minute runtime when we see a group of men pushing a scoring shack across the lawn, followed by Graves, well, Tim Curry playing Graves. Uh, he's met by Sir Robert Stevens, whose presently unnamed character we shortly learn as a chief medical officer. Ah, we may now surmise that this must be some manner of institution, um, who disregards any professional courtesy required by his esteemed colleague, the good Dr. Frankenfurter, then instead welcomes him to score their cricket match. Uh, Frankenfurter takes no offense, to, however, when the chief doc informs him that his co-scorer will be one Charles Crossley. Uh, whom he describes as the most intelligent man in the place, uh, who's also apparently well-read, well-traveled, loves motorbikes, but who is not entirely normal because he believes that his soul has been shattered into four pieces. All of this gives further foreshadowing to the notion that the film is set at some fancy institution. Uh, when asked what exactly constitutes normal, the chief has an idiosyncratic answer. Points out one tree that he says is normal, and points out another big majestic oak and says that one isn't normal. So, so who that's the fuck knows what, or cares? So that's what the hell they were talking about. His delivery was so British, I could not ascertain what it was. And because I watched this with a device that did not have any kind of subtitles, I was lost. Yeah, it's yeah, the emoting is impenetrably British. Also, I found it very interesting that it looks like they spent the most money on was the scoring shack than any oh, of yes, the other there's, um, <laughs> there's a very good reason for this, because without the incredibly impenetrable scoring system, no one would ever know when it actually ends and they can go home. Vital, vital role. This is why <laughs> they have to have two people do it. So this is cricket. <laughs> I wanted to note that like throughout this entire um like monologue of the doctors we get this background dialogue going on that is so badly recorded and dubbed back in yes. it sounds like someone mumbling directly yes. into the mic like this and then this played back in the film like this and you don't quite know oh what they're God. saying but it's at full volume yes <laughs> like it's oh, so someone like... whispering in your ear rather than shouting in the background oh my god it's terrible it's... oh my god yeah and was... yet still better than 2010 sound design oh my god <laughs> you know what it's just it's avant-garde and majestic and you all love it and shut up how about that listen listen don't hold background christopher noise, nolan background noise, as background the noise. <laughs> don't hold christopher nolan as like the single standard for sound design for current films all right that guy i, I don't understand what he's doing <laughs> he's groundbreaking that's what he's doing that's uh i don't know if that's ground you want to be breaking there uh, <laughs> It's shale. It's all shale. <laughs> um, so Curry's character Graves is introduced to Alan Bates' character Charles Crossley, um, which means that this is whom we saw earlier as the ravening biker, giving the eye to Susanna York's as yet unnamed character in the Dushima. Uh Crossley is quite polite with a cultured university accent. He goes into how he likes to torment the doctor by making up symbols in his dreams for the doctor to interpret. This must mean the doctor is a psychiatrist, which means the institution must be mental. Freudian symbolism is high as uh, Crossley is handling his bone inside the shack. Uh, oh, to, God. Uh, uh, I should point out he has a literal bone that he is handling. This isn't some kind of metaphor. There's a lot of bone handling in the cricket shack, No, no, right? it is a metaphor, but it is a literal bone. <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah, but it is a literal <laughs> bone, uh, part of which has been sharpened to a point. Uh, more on this later. But he kicks it out of sight as he proceeds to build upon his reputation as an unreliable narrator, also more on this point later, by asking Graves if he can tell him a, quote, true story. This is some definition of the word true we haven't yet heard before, as he tells us that he alters the details, characters, and climax of said story in order to keep it true, and titillatingly involves people whom he claims are present at the cricket game. almost 20% into the full run of the film when we finally crossfade into the main story of the film, which is Crossley's story. Uh, it picks up where the opening credits left off, an Australian Aborigine in a naval officer's coat running around through the dunes. And then we smash cut to John Hurt playing Anthony Fielding in the story and Susanna York playing Rachel Fielding again in Crossley's story, awakening on those self-same dunes where they dozed off while sunbathing. This, I have to say, stretches my personal suspension of disbelief to the breaking point. This is supposed to be happening in fucking England, after all. Son? <laughs> in England? <laughs> Never! It's, it's important for me to note that due to certain treaties and ancient obligations, we technically own the sun. <laughs> <laughs> Something that... you grabbed during colonialism, is it? I do have to say that, you know, this is supposed to be in the British Riviera in Devon, um, which means you get to see the sun for maybe a full three weeks across a given year. And that's not all. What weeks they are. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I'd completely lost. I I should have noticed this, but, um, you know, having moved back from Interzone to California, like this just slipped my mind entirely. (laughs) Do they have a lot of sun in Interzone? Uh, no, not an interzone. It's covered by the smog of the black, but, um, in California, yes, they have sun, um, and fire, <laughs> lots of fire. Oh, yes. After awakening, uh, Anthony and Rachel described to each other a shared dream. The Aborigine we just saw meandering the dunes. They're both, uh, seem very Englishly unsurprised by this. The emotion level seems to rise up to right about the collarbones, and then that's about as far as it goes. Um, neither of them seems to find it too odd that they shared the dream together. Rachel recovers her sandals from the dunes only to find one is missing its buckle, as well as a broken cow bone, but a different broken cow bone from the one we'd seen earlier. Uh, don't forget these pieces. Uh, they're important. And then she freaks out for no apparent reason and reburies the bone as if it's like, oh, this is a sign of someone or something that I killed myself and I better rehide it so my husband doesn't see it. Yeah, that's an odd point. Yeah, you're right. She does that. Um, but yeah, no, if you're starting to feel a little bit like the guy in Close Encounters of the Third Kind, this means something. This is important. Um, don't be surprised because that's about the feeling you should be having. Um, Anthony and Rachel proceed to the village cobbler where Rachel leaves her shoes to be repaired. Outside, Anthony exchanges some significant looks with the cobbler's wife, played by Carol Drinkwater, who's better known as Alexander DeLarge's busty nurse in A Clockwork Orange. I, I uh, wish to point out I'm making the great big tits motion with both hands at this point. <laughs> you can't see it, but I'm doing it. I'm making the double, motion. double, double. Yeah, this is the this this is the same actress we saw um, in Flagrante Delicto and the very end scene of Clockwork Orange. Um, Maximum tits. Indeed. 
Uh, uh, Drinkwater yeah. herself is clearly mm -hmm. thirsty for Anthony because she makes eyes with him from the upstairs window. But Rachel doesn't seem to notice this. She comes out as Anthony basically waves off the cobbler's wife, and they turn around and almost walk into a mirror being carried across their path by a couple of workmen. An astute viewer might notice that the background reflected behind Rachel and Anthony in the mirror is of the asylum building and not the cobbler's shop. It took me actually the second watch to notice that. It was like, oh, this is I... clearly an art director making an art director Whoa. capital C creative choice. I completely <laughs> missed that. I knew yeah, that there was I, something I significant going on, but I think I got distracted by my boredom with the film. <laughs> yeah, I that's saw how it you know a... it's significant. That's how yeah. you realize because you don't see it. Uh, There's lots of ham-handed visual symbolism in throughout this whole movie. Very, very like, you know, I am an art director making strong visual symbolism here. Like same thing with, uh, uh, with the, the bee. There's a bee at one point you see floating over Alan's head. So many of these choices feel like they were made after the filming of the movie. So they're so heavily inserted after the fact that they make absolutely no sense. I didn't realize which building was in the mirror, but I, was, I did see, wait, that is not the right reflection. And I had no idea what it was supposed to mean. What it is feels very Herzogian, early Herzogian. What is the <laughs> symbolism of the bees? I never really figured that one out. The bees! Well, you know, like a bee is buzzing around crazily in his mind. So, you know, like this is, I think it's a suggestion, a subtle suggestion that we all remember that Alan Bates is bug fuck nuts. It's a little too subtle for me, I guess. Yeah. Well, <laughs> it seemed hand-handed to me as somebody who fancied himself a, an art director uh, when he was in his youth. Uh, but anyhow. <laughs> it did remind me a bit of your student film. So, yeah. I was the cinematographer part of that, so. Uh, yes, we, we are uh, long accomplices in committing cinematic crimes. <laughs> uh, <clears throat> the uh, cobbler gazes after them concernedly. We cross cut to Anthony dicking around in his music studio, um, engaging yeah. in some late 70s ASMR. Um, yep. found objects, equipment that's top of the line for the late 70s. And while it's clear he thinks he's going to create a one-man prog rock masterpiece, it's clear he's got more Yoko Ono than Alan Parsons. Uh, whatever he's chain smoking throughout the film, I'm going to bet it isn't tobacco. <laughs> um, what it, nevertheless, the big takeaway is that he neglects his wife in favor of wanking his prog rock dreams. Okay, I completely misinterpreted what was going on with pretty much all of that, which happens throughout the goddamn movie. I thought he was a Foley artist. <laughs> oh, no, no, yeah. we're, we're expected to believe that John Hurt has uh, created a, a, an entire recording studio in a little room in his Devonshire cottage and he's producing some grand progressive opera of some kind that we never really hear much of except for him making weird noises into microphones and messing with incredibly primitive early synthesizers but he never... sardine can asmr how is how is he a believable <laughs> artist with a capital a he never talks about it and to be fair he does get called out on how shitty an artist he is we'll get to that yeah like 80 percent of the way through the movie that's the first time they call him an artist he's referred to as an organist a couple of times that's i just assumed he was like he was a working foley foley recorder yeah it's because he's an <laughs> I assumed that too until until Master Bates called him on it. So wow. well, he's somebody who likes to wank his dreams in uh, his studio and then handle his organ in public at church. Speaking of which, uh, we also see Anthony is neglectful of his work 
uh, his a job as a church organist, and Rachel has to remind him that he's going to be late for the service. Uh, so he uh, runs out the door, hops on his bicycle, gets off to the church, and uh, does arrive late, walks in in the middle of the opening psalm, and starts playing music halfway through. But the cobbler's wife doesn't mind, though, and they make goo-goo eyes at each other during the blistering sermon on moral starvation. Um, moral, moral, moral. Jesus Salvation. is just Salvation. all right with me. Jesus is just all right with Oh, sorry. <laughs> I was rocking out to it the entire time. Uh, nothing as hip as that. This is all that, uh, that <laughs> oh, deadly, yeah. boring, uh, atonal howling that people do in uh, in churches that are stead and conservative. Yeah, shut up, um, brother Zachariah. We all know Jesus thinks you're a dick. That's <laughs> all right. Hey, I'm Jewish. <laughs> <laughs> He was one of my Hebrews, dude. This is, uh, uh, all of this is cross-cut with uh, somebody mysteriously sabotaging Anthony's bicycle. We see a suspiciously black pea-coated arm reaching in to uh, let the air out of his tires. So uh, going back into the church, the rest of the village sees this exchange of goo-goo eyes. The old folks clearly disapprove. Love hurts, though, and drink water Mm -hmm. runs off, (laughs) leaving Anthony to the withering judgmental glares from everyone, including the vicar. Uh, Service concluded, Anthony jogs back to his bicycle, only to shock of shocks, find his tires flat. Reinflating them gives Charles Crossley, uh, whom we now see, an opportunity to approach and start a dialogue about his belief in a time of moral starvation that the human soul might take refuge outside the body in a tree or a stone or some such bullshit. and Crossley offers to continue this diatribe while walking with Anthony uh, and talking further, but Anthony wisely declines and and hops on the back of his bike. So we cross cut back to the fielding house where Rachel seems disturbed and we see that Crossley has magically begun lurking nearby. Um, We have no idea how he got from the church to the house, but he's there at the house lurking nearby, playing with her shoes missing buckle in one hand and fingering a nearby nettle plant with the other and nettles being notoriously uncomfortable to handle with any body part. Elsewhere, Anthony gives uh, the cobbler's wife a ride on his bicycle. Folks, get your minds out of the sewer. Sometimes love don't feel like it should, baby, but hurts not so good. He's Uh... rubbish at cycling. They crash and fall giggling into the grass. God help him if he ever actually tries to have sex with her. They should probably end up with navel contusions. No wonder Anthony and Rachel are childless. Uh... Act one. Brethren. I fear cinemania has begun to overtake the members of this conclave. We must go to recess before everyone loses their grip. That episode of the Cinemania Society featured Andy Slack, Ethan Ireland, Zachariah Burks, Daniel Scribner, Andre Luke Martinez, and special guest, The Trash Shaman. Produced, mixed, and mastered by Ethan Ireland, graphic design by Andy Slack, Music by Carl Casey at White Bat Audio. Visit our website at thecinemaniasociety.podbean.com and check out our social media feeds. We're on Twitter at TCS underscore Cinemania. And if you like what you heard, please rate and review wherever you found us. Mention us on social media or find us on Kofi to throw us a few bones. We love to make fun stuff for folks, but it isn't free. Anything and everything helps. Coming soon... The Cinemania Society will be creating pieces of video media, short films and the like. So stay tuned, Cinemaniacs. The Cinemania Society is a production of the Cinemania Society, LLC.